9. And uh, we are in a section of the book of Romans where the Apostle Paul is addressing issues that you're not asking as a 21st century person. Uh, and he's giving you an answer that you don't want to hear as a 21st century person. So um, this is a uh, difficult passage in a number of ways. It's difficult because it's confusing. And it's difficult because it's hard to hear. And so um, we're, gonna, we're going to go through this text as faithfully as possible. And it's going to, Lord willing, shape our view of God and have you an, uh, give you an elevated view of who God is. Now, um, last, last week, Brother Patrick preached um, and opened up this issue. And the issue is this, that we're entering ourselves. So imagine a first century Jew and his brothers are not coming to Christ. And so why are so many of God's chosen people, the Israelites, the Jews, why are so many of God's chosen people not being saved in Christ, their Messiah? Why is that? If the gospel is such good news, why are God's elect not being saved? That's the issue on the table. So if you look with me in Romans 9, we have the answer. The question is answered by defining who the elect are from God's perspective, not man's perspective. And the elect, according to God's perspective, is not necessarily... Now, let me rephrase that. It is not a biological, uh, it does not come biologically. Your election is not based on your ethnicity. Your election is based on something else. It's not as though the word of God has failed, verse 6, to save God's people, the elect. It's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. There is a spiritual Israel. Those who have faith in Christ are the spiritual Israel, and God's chosen people are not chosen because they are Jews, because they had the law, because they are Israelites. It's not based on their race. It's based on God's election, which is apart from those things. So, read with me then verses 14 through 23 today. Uh, I would like to get past verse 29, but I suspect we won't. So let's read through verse 23, and uh, we will continue. So, let me, let me back up here really quick, actually. And read verse 12 to, to get to punch you with the with the offense of this passage. So verse 11. So remember uh, Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works 
but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make this out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, after reading Romans 8, we heard about God's everlasting love, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. There is no height nor depth. Christ is there, and he intercedes for us. That life, nor death, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Now, having said that, the person who has read the Bible might say, now, wait a second. Didn't God have that relationship with Israel? Didn't he have a covenantal relationship with Israel like that? Has, do we, are, so are you saying that God changes his mind? I mean, clearly, Israel's not being saved. So is he therefore capable of doing that to his people again? That's the question that Paul, that's behind the answer here. And the answer that Paul gives is no, as I said before, God has not rejected his people. His people are not an ethnic group. They're a spiritual group. All right, so I'm going to walk through this text the best way I can. I'm going to give you my best read of it. Now, many of you are Bible readers and have been around Scripture for a long time, so you know what surrounds this passage. You know the debates, you know the confusion, but if you're, if you're not aware of what we're actually getting into today, let me tell you something, you're in the deep end of the theological pool today. And so this sermon is going to be intensely theological because that's what Paul's passage is about. This is a theological 
question we're asking. So I'm going to give you my best read of this today based on my reading of Scripture, my reading of this passage, and trying to put the whole Bible together. Um, so walk, walk through this with me verse by verse. I want to take one verse at a time and just trace the logic here through Paul's argument. So let me read verses 11 and 12 again about Jacob and Esau's birth. Before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because somebody has worked so hard and impressed God with their piety, but because of him who calls, she was told, the mother was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. There is a redemptive meaning to this. Now we saw that hate is a Hebrew idiom, just like foreknow is a Hebrew idiom in chapter 8. If you remember the, our, my sermon a few weeks ago, it's those who God foreknew. He didn't just know about them. Knowledge in the Hebrew idiom means something more than knowing about. It means a love. It means an intimacy. Adam knew his wife Eve, and they bore a son. God said to Jeremiah, before you were in the womb, I knew you. So Abraham knew more, or Adam knew more than about his wife Eve. He had an intimate relationship with his wife Eve. And God knew more than just simply about Jeremiah. He had a special, intimate love for the, this is, that's what love means in the Hebrew idiom. So to forelove means to love before, to foreknow means to love beforehand in a very special and unique way. Hate, likewise, in the Hebrew idiom, does not mean I wish you would die. Hate in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew idiom means there's two choices and you prefer the one so strongly and so profoundly over the other that it looks like you're eschewing the former. Jesus said, you must hate your father and your mother if you want to serve me. When God saw that Jacob hated Leah, he blessed her. Now, he didn't want Leah to die, is he preferred Rachel, okay? So I, I, I want you to at least get that. I want to get that on the table. Nevertheless, what this passage does tell you, although he didn't want Esau to just die, he did choose Jacob over Esau. And it was before they had done anything good or bad. And so the question comes up, if God chooses people apart from anything about the person, is this unjust? Choosing, another word, a biblical word for that is election. Is that unjust then? If God chooses people apart from anything they have done, good or bad, is God unjust? The Apostle Paul gives an answer that must, be, must have been like a relief to the first century Jew, because the Greek gods were capricious, 
They were hateful. They came down and raped women. They were, they were awful gods. And this was the lore surrounding this area. So, Paul, are you saying that that's what you're saying Yahweh is like? And Paul says, by no means, verse 14, by no means. God is not unjust. He is good. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I, I'm reminded of, of Abraham interceding for the people of Sodom. And he says, surely if there are ten righteous in the city, you will not destroy them. He says, if there, God said, if there are ten righteous, I will not destroy the city. Oh, what about five? If there are five righteous, I will not destroy the city. God is never unfair or unjust. He is always just, and he is always good. So please understand that what follows does not connote that God is somehow capricious or unfair. God is fair, and he is just. Now, Paul backs that up now with Scripture. So he's speaking to the Jew here, and he says, Consider what the Scripture has itself has to say about God's choosing. Yahweh is a choosing God, and he backs it up with more Scripture. This time, God's speaking to Moses in Exodus 33, 19. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So this is God's discriminatory choice that's being surfaced here by the Apostle Paul. One commentator, Grant Osborne, says, For Paul, the key point is the affirmation of God's mercy. God's, elect will, God's election stems from his mercy and compassion. This tells us that God's will is not capricious. It is not arbitrary, but it is free. That's so key. It's God's will is not arbitrary. It's not just, he's not just picking people randomly. However, he is picking people. God is free. So not arbitrary, but free. God is not constrained, in other words, to show mercy on someone because that person has lived a moral life, despite what our country all over says. He is not impressed by somebody's good deeds. Jesus said they're like filthy rags. You will not impress God with your piety, no matter how niche it is in our society. And there are, it depends, every 10 years, being pious and being godly comes with different tastes, different flavors. Today, it's, it's social justice, and there's a lot of focus on race and, and, uh, and all of this. And the thing is, you're not going to impress God, all right? And God does not owe you mercy, all right? I, again, I probably told you this before, but I was working with a, at the bank with uh, my coworker, and uh, he says, well, God loves everyone, right? And I said, no, not really. God doesn't love, we're all God, he, oh, that's what he said, God, we're all God's children. I said, no, not really. Only those who have faith in Christ are God's children. 
That's the ones whom he loves with that special covenantal love. Now, the, the, the larger theological question I have not answered yet, and that's why some of you are uncomfortable with what I'm saying. It's who does God choose to show mercy on? We'll leave that to later. But our relationship to God depends on his sovereign choice to show mercy. Verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So verse 16 is about what your relation to God does and does not depend on. What it does not depend on is your willing or exertion. So nothing from within yourself, nothing from outside of yourself. Douglas Moo, a commentator, says this stands for the totality of human capacity. So your relationship with God depends on nothing inside or outside of yourself. Nothing you can want to do and nothing that you do do. So what does one's relation to God depend on? Verse 16, but on God who, had, who shows mercy. So this clarifies verse 12. It's not by works, but on God who shows mercy. Not because of anything they had done, either good or bad, but on God who shows mercy. So the conclusion, the theological doctrinal conclusion that every Christian must understand is that God's mercy is the basis for his acceptance of sinners, not their work. And mercy, by definition, is being spared of what you do deserve. It's being spared of what you deserve. That is the basis of his acceptance of sinners. It is his mercy, not your willing, not your running, not your works, but his mercy. God, in other words, does not owe you anything. He shows mercy on people. I, I heard a good analogy just to surface what mercy is, that there was a mother who had a son who had committed a horrible crime, triple homicide, and the, the mother goes up to the judge and, and says, Judge, will you please have mercy on my son? Please show mercy on my son. And the judge said, Woman, you have, have you seen what your son has done? And the horror he has committed. He deserves the full weight of the law. And the mother turns around and replies, Judge, I asked for mercy, not justice. That's the difference. Mercy is being spared of what you deserve. Justice is being given what you do deserve. Grace is being given what you do not deserve. So, God is always fair. He is always fair, and he is fair to every person. 
However, God chooses to be more fair to some people. That's what Paul's saying. God is always fair to every person, but he chooses to be more than fair to some. Um, here's another great example from a, a preacher named David Guzik. I think he's a Calvary Chapel guy. Think about being more than fair to some people. Imagine, so imagine you go into work one day. I know we don't get paychecks anymore. We get them just right to the bank, right? But imagine they still hand out your paychecks. And so you go up, you hard, you know, you, you worked hard, you, you know, um, Ray, you, you put out a lot of fires that week, you know? You, you worked hard, you earned your paycheck, right? You installed a lot of cable that week, Gary. You, you really, you, you're all, you deserve it. It's your money, right? And so you go, you hold out your hand, and your, your manager slaps down your paycheck and gives you the money. And your friend right next to you is standing right next to you, and he opens out his hand, and your manager puts down the paycheck and 10000 extra dollars. And you're just so happy for your friend, right? You're just so happy for him. No, you're wondering, why did he get extra? Why is... Now, does that mean, by the way, does that mean that your boss has been unfair to you? No, he, he's, been, he's been fair to you. He's given you what he owes you, but he's been more than fair. More than fair to your friend. So, that's the idea here. God is, um, God is fair to everyone, but he is more than fair to some. Now, how does God choose to deal with others to whom he's not more than fair to? That's what verses 17 and 18 are about. Now, track with me here. All right? Verses 17 and 18 show the negative side of election, of God's choosing. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he also hardens whomever he wills. Now, Pharaoh was the prototype of rebellion. Has everyone read the Pharaoh story? I see no one's hand. So none of you read the Pharaoh story. <laughs> no. I, so the Pharaoh, really quick uh, synopsis of Pharaoh is that Moses told Pharaoh, you know, that the Israel, Israelites are in Egypt, and Moses commit, or God commissions Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And it's very interesting, in Exodus 5, 1 through 2, it says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and, says, and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him, that I should obey his voice and let his people go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Rebel, just defiance against God. There, here is a man 
a king, maybe one of the most successful kingdoms at that time, armies and riches. And this sniveling slave with his slave people and his slave stuttering with some person, another old man comes to me saying some Jewish king, some God tells me to let my people go. I don't know the Lord. Imagine that kind of defiance. Well, here's what God says to that. He says to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you in Exodus 7, 4 and 5. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and I will bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. I love that because God takes up Pharaoh on the challenge. Pharaoh says, I do not know the Lord. And God says, when I bring my my great acts of judgment against Egypt, then they'll know me. They'll know me then. Why then? Why did God elevate Pharaoh? Step back from that scenario for a second. Why did God choose to elevate Pharaoh, a stubborn, rebellious, defiant individual, to his role and then allow him to defy the almighty creator? Why did God allow him to do that? Answer, so that God's power might be shown through Pharaoh's defiance, his power to save and slaughter his enemies. Verse 17, for this purpose I have raised you up, that my power might be shown in you. You don't know me? You'll know me. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And it's so interesting. God wants his power, his glory, and his saving ability to be proclaimed in all the earth. That is indeed what the Great Commission is, right? We're bringing people under the authority of God in Christ through, the, through discipleship. And so Abe, Rahab, remember the prostitute Rahab in Jericho when the spies come? Rahab says to the spies, I know the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen on us and that the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens and above and on the earth beneath. So not only did Egypt know, not only did Pharaoh know, but the nations knew that God was mighty. 
and he was not to be trifled with. You don't know the Lord? Well, he's going to show you who he is. So God allows rebellious kings to defy God and threaten his people so that he might show that he is mighty to save and that he is mighty to judge his people against their enemies. The enemies of God only serve to highlight the power of God's working on behalf of his people. Verse 18. So then, keep that Pharaoh situation in mind. God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills for his purposes and for his glory. Now, what does it mean to harden? What does harden mean? To harden is the opposite of mercy in verse 18. He has mercy and he hardens. Those are the two things that God does to people. He has mercy on some, he hardens others. So mercy means that God takes rebellious people and shows them forgiveness and compassion. That's mercy. And that's you and me. He takes rebellious people and shows them forgiveness. That's mercy. Hardening means that God takes rebellious people and locks them in to their rebellion. He secures them in their rebellion and their unrepentance and their stubbornness and hands them over to it and the consequences that follow and the judgment that follows. Has not God done this to the world? In verse 22, all the way back in Romans chapter 1, we see this is how God hardens people. Claiming to be wise, men became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to dishonoring their bodies among one another. God gives people up to their impurities. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased bond. So God gives rebellious people over to what they've chosen. He hardens them and the consequences of sin, and the judgment that follows from it. That's what hardening is, and he did that to Pharaoh as well. Now, the objection to this is verse 19. If God hardens people like that at the very point of their rebellion, at the very point of their rebellion, so that they cannot turn back, they cannot repent anymore. If he hardens people at the point of their defiance, how can he find fault in them? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? 
For who can resist his will? Now, there are two, two kinds of responses to this. So uh, what, this is a very hard passage. And some of you might be wondering, well, why does God choose? That, seem, that does seem unfair. I'm wrestling with that. I'm struggling with that. I, I don't understand how that works. Um, that's a tough thing to accept. I want to understand this. I, I want to bow the knee to God, but it just, I want to understand how that works, why he chooses, why he hardens people, and then judges them. Why does he do this? That's one kind of response. That's allowed here. Here's another kind of response. I'm not worshiping a capricious God like that. I'm not worshiping a God who just hardens people and has mercy on some, a choosing God who plays favorite, favorites. And is that not the atmosphere in today, today's culture and society? If a person finds God's actions objectionable, then that person continues to live as if that God does not exist, as if God's existence is dependent upon your moral compass. That's So it, he, God exists and he is powerful whether or not it aligns with your moral scruples. As if, you, as if you could decide whether or not God is real and powerful based on how you feel. There's, there's, there is so little logic today from unbelieving people. Now, I mean, there is some, but there's very little logic from a lot of unbelieving people, even popular level books and, and videos. It's, it's, um, it's not from out of logical reasoning. That's how you disprove the existence of God. You want to you know how to di- disprove Christianity? Prove to me that something comes into existence uncaused out of nothing. If you can do that, then I will say, well, maybe the, maybe the universe could have come into existence uncaused out of nothing. You only need one example to disprove the first law of thermodynamics. And I will, I will say, well, you got me there. All right. Anyhow, verse 20. So that's, that's the attitude that Paul's addressing now. It's that defiant attitude. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? So you're a man or a woman. And that's in deliberate contrast to God. So you're a man, dust, replying to God. Let's turn to Job 38, 1 through 4. If I can find it. I know it's here. I had it. I left it here yesterday. Job 38. Now, Job went through a tough time. And... Um, he was, an, he was tempted to answer back to God. And here's how God answered him. Or here's the account, verse thir, chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job from out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this 
that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and make it new, you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. I just stop right there, but the point is, who are you? Did you did you did you speak the universe into existence? The, the blackness, the depth of the universe, the, the almost intimidating mass of creation. I, God spoke that out. So who are you to answer back to a being such as this? With immense power and glory. Now, notice Paul does not give an answer. Now, Paul is not saying that there is no answer to the question. But he is challenging an attitude of the creature presuming to judge the creator. It's the attitude of the creature presuming to judge the creator. Again, as if your moral compass is the referee between what God should and should not do. Who are you to reply back to God? Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So God has the right to do whatever he wants with humanity. So that, that should put the questioner in his or her place. We are dust, clay. And God can do whatever he wants with humanity. He is free to do that. Now, here's where Paul kind of takes a turn, and he gives us what is closest to an answer for why God chooses the hardening and showing of mercy in verse 21. Uh, verse 22. What if God... So God, Paul seems to be proposing a solution. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make the riches of his glory known on vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand, beforehand for glory? So what Paul is saying is, what if it is the case that God wants to bring down wrath on wicked individuals like Pharaoh today? What if that is the case? But nevertheless, he has withheld from doing so. And he has rather endured patiently with wicked men. What if that is the case? And what if he did it for the reason listed in verse 23? And what if he did it in order to make the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? Now, what I think Paul seems to be saying, just from reading the passage, read, read one more time with me. I want you to come up with your own conclusion. Let's see if we match up. All right? Now, what if God, desiring to 
show his wrath and to make known his power has actually endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared prepared beforehand for glory all right now you, do you have your reason why has God chosen to not only create people who would rebel, but then to endure their rebellion and not show forth his wrath? Do you have your answer of what, as to why he would do such a thing? Verse 23 seems to say, this is my best reading of the text, seems to say that the vessels of destruction are somehow instrumental to the salvation of vessels prepared for mercy. That is to say, God and his putting up with the sin and defiance of vessels prepared for destruction somehow benefits the elect. This fits with verse 28, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. But in what way, then, if that's correct, in what way would, God pati- would God's patient endurance of the reprobate be instrumental to the salvation of the elect? How would that be? How would God's patient endurance of defiant sinners be instrumental to the salvation of the elect. How would that be? I think we have some Old Testament Old Testament examples that give us a clue. The preeminent example being Joseph's life in verse 50-20 of Genesis. Joseph tells his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It seems to be that God can use even the wickedness and evil actions of persons for his redemptive purposes, for his salvation purposes, whether historical or eternal. With Israel, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and God made him a vessel of wrath to make known his power, but In doing so, he released Israel. In the world today, it seems to be, based on reports, that Christianity is growing in China, of all places, which is one of the most hostile environments towards Christians. And Africa, and communist areas. And so it seems to be that God even uses wickedness and evil to water his church somehow. And that's the, biggest, that's the answer Paul gives. Perhaps it's the case, based on an informed reading of the Bible and view of world history, that God endures wickedness. So as it so because it is instrumental to the salvation of the elect. 
I'm going to stop there exegeting the text. We'll get to the rest next week, but I just want to draw some conclusions together from this passage. Here's the point. Here's the recap, quick recap, is why are so many of God's chosen people, Israel, not coming to salvation in Christ? Answer, the reason God's chosen people have not come to salvation is because God's chosen people are not necessarily biological descendants of Israel. God's chosen people are a spiritual Israel. They are those upon whom God chooses to show mercy and forgiveness. Point two, God's choice to show mercy and harden others is consistent with what, with what we know about God in the Old Testament. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It is no surprise that God is an electing and choosing God. Now, to a person who is challenged by this, the person that believes that this might be unjust, I want to ask you the question, honestly, is Paul answering your questions? Is he, ask yourself honestly, isn't Paul answering your questions in this text? Or at least bringing them up? So as soon as you say, hey, I don't like that God would hate somebody and choose somebody else, doesn't he answer your objection when he says, is there injustice with God? And, and you say, well, I, I don't like that. It doesn't sit well with me that God has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. Doesn't he answer that question that you might have with why does he still find fault for who can resist as well? Doesn't he anticipate where you're coming from? But wants you to accept it anyhow? It's a reasonable question. It, it really is. But God is sovereign. And his will is sovereign. Now, to most, some of you who have are with me so far, here's where things get a little different for me. So God hardens some. He elects people. He chooses people. He hardens some, has mercies on others, right? Um, my question is this, and your question must be this. Is this passage teaching that a person's eternal destiny, that people's eternal, eternal destinies are unalterably fixed before time? In other words, is predestination absolute? Is this passage teaching that a person's destiny is unalterably fixed before time? Is predestination absolute? I want to say that is certainly possible based on an honest reading of this passage. And good brothers, perhaps some of the more, most Faithful, upright, godly men I know and I admire hold that view. And when you go to verse 13, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And when you go to verse 21, has not the potter right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? It seems to me that that is a legitimate way to read the passage. 
Grant Osborne, in his commentary, says, There is no question that Paul is arguing for the sovereign authority of God to do just that. That is, predetermine some to hell and predetermine some to heaven. There is no question that God has authority to do that. So we have to bow the knee to that possibility. And that is, so about, let me just say what I want to say, and then I'll say what I else want to say. Um, that's possible. However, however, it seems to me, and you don't have to agree with me, and I know you probably don't, a lot of you, but it seems to me that the Bible teaches, Scripture teaches, that elected individuals can be cut off and hardened individuals can be reconnected to the vine. If you'll turn with me to Romans 11, 20, Romans 11 verse 19. I am suggesting that a person's predestination is a real thing, that God can and does at various times set the trajectories of certain persons' eternal destinies, perhaps all eternal destinies. My question is, is that decision unalterable? If you're foreknown and elect before the foundation of the world, is your destiny unalterable? Honestly, I don't see that in the Bible. And show me where I'm wrong in Romans 11, verse 19. Paul, assuming that he is being consistent in his argumentation about Jews and Gentiles in election, says, Then you will say, speaking to the Jew or a Gentile, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. Now, what does faith do for a person? It justifies them in the eyes of God through Christ. Faith reconciles them to God and unites them to Christ. And they stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For God did not spare the natural branches, neither where he, will he spare you, perhaps. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Drop presuppositions for a second. Because I guarantee I've read just as much as you on this passage. Calvinists and Arminians. And it seems to me that some great scholars, great exegetes of the Bible, are masterful, masterful when it comes to Romans 9. I mean just masterful exegetes, and they won't let me wiggle out of it. But when they come to Romans 11, 22 they become theological troglodytes. It's like they don't know how to read. This is clear to me 
that those who had faith, who must stand firm, must continue to do so. Otherwise, God has the right to cut them off. Which shows to me that predestination, although God can fix and does fix eternal uh, does fix eternal destinies, it seems to suggest that that is not an unalterable reality. What about for the hardened? What about for the hardened? Is their eternal destiny fixed? Verse 23. And even if they, that is, unbelieving Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted back in. For God has the power to graft them in again. So you might reply, well, God is talking about people groups. Certainly he is, but people groups are comprised of individuals, are they not? And certainly Paul has that in view, verse 23. So, and even if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted back in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For you were cut off, cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted in, that is to God's promises, to Israel, to a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So, I'm going to end that there. So, that is not easy to wrap your mind around. But what system does this fit into? What theological system does this fit into? I don't know. I do not know what theological system this fits into. I do believe that you are foreloved before the foundation of the world. I also believe very strongly, if you've heard my preaching for a long time, in Romans 8, 12 through 13. If you live according to the flesh, Christian, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I believe very strongly in one's the necessity of keeping in step with the Holy Spirit and following Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I know God loved you before time, but you need to remain steadfast in faith. You must continue. You must work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, I do not have a theological system, but as I said before, I'm not preaching systems. I don't have confidence in the systems of men. And I suspect that the two major theological systems simply cannot account for all the data of Scripture. That's a conclusion I've come to. That's my suspicion. So, what, what conclusions can we draw about God, about life? Let me just name a few as I look through this text. Number one, God is just. All right? He is just and he is fair. He decides to show mercy on people. Who are the people, I believe, who are the people that God decides to show mercy on? Why? It's those who place faith in Christ, because that's not a work. You're not trying to impress God with your law-keeping or your piety. You reach out with the empty hands of faith. God 
has the prerogative to harden people. If God sees a man in rebellion against him, like Pharaoh, he has the choice and the prerogative to lock him in to his hardness of heart, locking him into his unrepentant state and enacting judgment on him for a greater purpose. What might that purpose be? Why does God put up with evil and wicked men? Why it's in order that to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared hand for glory. Even the schemes of wickedness and evil, God repurposes for the good of his elect people. And he, he I heard John Piper say this, he takes wickedness and he folds it in to his causality. That's what I believe. And God is sovereign. And he's not to be trifled with. All right? Walk away with that. Here is a picture of a God who you say you don't, you don't know him. And you will not let your life be connected to him through faith. Well, he will make himself known to you. So receive him while it is today. Do not harden your hearts. So if there is someone here who has not placed faith in Christ, you will know that God is calling you to do that if he is presenting Christ before you with weight and pressure, with a feeling that it is right and good that you should receive him and come under him as his, your Lord and Savior, and that you must, and that your eternal destiny hangs in the balances. If you feel that weight and that pressure, the Bible calls that effectual calling. God has said you, yes, you, repent and believe. All right, next week we'll continue to look through this passage and investigate it. But for now, know that God is sovereign and he is just and he is good. Amen. Amen.